If you have your Bible, open up to chapter 5, verse 1. If not, I think it's printed there on your sheets and uh, would love to walk through that with you. You may remember, if you've been with us for, for this uh, semester, that we're looking at the book of Romans. And what we do every week in RUF is we try to walk through the text as it comes to us. And so we usually spend, uh, each semester is usually on a series, and we, we find ourselves in Romans. And what we've said about Romans all year long, all semester long, is that the gospel, this good news that God is reconciling and redeeming all of creation back into himself, that right there, that good news changes everything. It changes the way that you live your life. It changes the way that you enter into your friendships. It changes the way that you do your work. It literally changes everything once it begins to get down into your bones. Well, tonight, we're going to look at how the gospel changes the way, are you ready, that God actually sees us. But the way that God actually sees us and what that does for us. So what God, how how that how God sees us and how that and what that does for us. This raises a great question. From the beginning, it raises a great question of how do you know that you can be confident of something? Let me say that again. How do you know that you can be confident of something? In other words, what gives you confidence in a particular thing or person? It's a question I don't think we think about a lot. But it's wonderful to think about even as we're considering Romans chapter 5. And so tonight, as you consider that, let's read. Okay, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Listen to God's word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Amen. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to all those who take take refuge in him. Will you pray with me and ask the Lord to help us tonight? Lord, I'm asking tonight that you would be made much of and that we might hear what you have to say to us for our good, for our joy, for our delight, for our comfort, for our hope, and in all these things that you might receive glory because of it. 
We're praying that Jesus would be more beautiful to us, that He would be more believable to us, and that You would help us tonight to see Him. To do that, Lord, You'll have to get me out of the way. You'll have to deal with my insecurities. You'll have to deal with my fears. You'll have to deal with my words that won't be said exactly right. So, Lord, speak through me so that we might all hear You. Or we come before You. Your servants are listening. Speak, we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know how many of y'all know the author, pastor, J.D. Greer. Does anybody know that name? Okay. He's a pastor back in North Carolina. Pretty, he's well-written and uh, published and such. But he tells the story growing up, and I just want you to see, I've got to read it a little bit off my phone, but I want you all to see if this fits with any of your experience. Okay? Tell me if this fits at all. He says, by the time between, by the time, he says, between the time I was 13 years old and 20 years old, for some of you that's you, I probably prayed the sinner's prayer probably at least seven to eight thousand times. Every time a speaker would stand up and, and speak, I'd pray in my seat or I'd go up in one of those churches where you went forward and the pastor would just sort of shake his head at me. I got baptized four times. No joke. I've been saved at youth camps all over the world. I have been saved in every denomination. If there were a Guinness Book of World Records for the amount of times somebody prayed the sinner's prayer, I win. That's exactly what he would say. I don't know what you guys think about that, but if you were to look at my life, I know I can resonate that with him. I remember growing up in and around the church and always wondering if I meant it. Y'all know what I mean by that? If I meant it. That was a big question. How serious was I? So I would go to like church camps, you know what I mean? And uh, this is, I'm not proud of this, but you know, I was kind of like the rebel kid. Um, You know, I was about six foot, soaking wet, 125 pounds, a rebel to be messed with, I will tell you that. And um, I remember, you know, at one point at church camp, me and some of my other friends would go out and like smoke some cigarettes or something like that. And I was like, oh man, I'm so cool. This is when I was in high school, you know. Um, and then I remember kind of being like, uh oh, like, uh oh, oh, whoa, what did I just do? Oh my goodness, I better go get, I better go get serious again, right? I better go mean it again. And so then I would run back to God, I'd pray, I'd say, oh man, I'm so sorry, Lord, will you please save me? And and then you just like hit repeat fifteen thousand times. Y'all, why do I share this story with you? Because I think, if you're honest, you might relate if you grew up in and around the church. You see, the problem was, was that I was radically unsure about God's love for me. I was insecure about what He actually thought of me. And I thought, much like Pastor J.D. Greer, and maybe even you had thought, that God really only saves those who deserve it. That's what I thought. And here we go, ready? And those who deserve it are the people who are most sincere. And that wasn't me. And so I had a problem on my hands. Well, y'all, here's what I want you to maybe see tonight. I want y'all to begin to wonder, what if that were not the way that God worked? Let me put it another way. What if it wasn't your sincerity that saved you? What if it was something greater? 
What if it was something that was more secure, more stable? Because you see, if it is your own sincerity, how well and how deep you mean it, you know what's going to happen? Your life is going to be lived like this. And you, like J.D. Greer, are going to pray the sinner's prayer 7,000 times. You're going to be baptized 8,000 times. Because why? <clears throat> because you're always going to be wrestling if you meant it or not. And if you didn't mean it enough. Do you see what I mean? Well, there's hope for you tonight. That's why Paul writes Romans chapter 5. In it, he is wanting to show us, y'all, the deep and profound promise that God wants you to know, to have a sense on the heart of your, here's the big word for the night, of your assurance of your salvation. That sense that you have that God is actually pleased with you and that everything is okay between you and Him right this very moment despite how sincere you are. Can you believe that tonight? That's what we're going to look at. And Paul is going to give us three particular ways, three particular things here in this text that he wants to show us, for us to look at, so that we might have a deep and abiding assurance of God's love for us. The first, are you ready? Here it is, is a secure peace. A secure peace. The second, as we'll get to in just a moment, is a deep love. And then lastly, a glorious hope. So let's take a look, first of all, at this secure peace. You know, Paul has just been saying that God is the one that looks at the finished work of Jesus Christ for us on the cross and He credits to us this right standing. That's what we've been looking at for the past several weeks. That word is called justified. You see it there showing up in the text. Verse 5.1 Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at this word peace here since that's sort of my main point. I think when we think of peace, we often think about that internal subjective feeling, right, of peace. And we think about that too in the Christian life because there are parts in the Bible that talk about the peace that God gives us, that Christ gives us. I'm thinking maybe of like Philippians chapter 4 where the peace of God is said to rule our hearts, okay? Well, that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about an internal sense. That is peace, the peace of Christ or the peace of God. And what this text is telling us is that we have peace with God. And what that means is, is this, is that there is an objective, external, outside of us reality that now God and man, if you are in Jesus, are at peace with one another. In other words... You remember what we've been reading about in Romans chapter 3? We talked about, all the way back to Romans chapter 1, we read about this wrath of God that was being revealed against all forms of ungodliness, Romans 1.18. If you remember that, well, remember this idea of wrath, that God has got this settled anger against sin. And what Paul is telling us now in chapter 5 is that because of Christ's work for us, that there's no longer that wrath, but there is peace. In other words, to use some images, the guns have been laid down. The cannons that were pointed at you and me, the enmity, the warfare, that man apart from Christ is at war with God, the Scriptures tell us. But when Christ does His finishing work for us, God, as it were, lays down the guns that were pointed at you and at me. 
And y'all, what that means is, is that we have an external peace. The Hebrew word is shalom. That we have this external, outside of us peace now with God. Now, when we think about peace, we probably often think of the idea of the absence of warfare, right? The absence of war. And that's, again, not quite the biblical understanding of the word peace. The word of peace is that it's not just one of external, you know, absence of warfare stuff, but that it's also the idea of flourishing, the idea of living as things ought to be, the idea of, of, of think, uh, imagine a flower, Imagine a flower that's not gotten enough water. It exists, it's alive, but when you give it enough water, when you give it enough sunlight, it just opens up and blooms. It's flourishing. That's the image of what peace is all about. And what this text is telling us over and over again is that God and man are now at peace with one another. If you look down in verses 11 and 10, you see the language not of peace, but that we have been reconciled. Do you see that there? that we have been reconciled to God. The image there of reconciliation or two parties that were in animosity together have now been brought back together in wholeness and in peace with one another. And what this is saying, y'all, this is huge. This is huge. This means this, that right now, despite your sneaking suspicion that God is not happy or is not pleased with you, that He actually is. That what that means is, is that God is not sort of secretly wondering, watching over you, seeing if you're going to toe the line. And if you don't, whap, He's going to smack you upside the head. That what this is telling us is that all is well between you and God at this very moment. No matter what you think, no matter how sincere you are, because of the finished work of Jesus for you. Y'all see that? And that is good news. And it is something that you must keep coming back to over and over again. Y'all, if you don't get this, if you do not see how justification leads to peace, listen, when you face trials in your life, when the proverbial poo hits the fan, right? You're going to end up thinking one of two things if you don't believe this. One, you will be mad at yourself because you will kick yourself saying, I wish I should have tried harder. I should have tried harder. Because if the peace that God is supposed to give you, you'll look at your life and you'll say, why is this trial coming at me? Right? I must, you know what? God wants me to, God wants me to perform or to be serious enough. And because I haven't, uh, it's on me. Or secondly, you won't be mad at yourself you'll be mad at God. How? You'll be the person that looks at God and says, God, you are not holding up your end of the bargain. I have worked hard. I have prayed hard enough. I have told people about Jesus. And now, you're bringing all these trials into my life. What's up with that? I thought we had a deal. I would do my part. You do yours. And when the life begins to fall apart, if you do not understand justification by faith, you, and if you never see the peace that you have with God, you'll always be mad at yourself or you'll be mad at God whenever trials come rolling into your life and they will come. What Paul is telling us, y'all, is that we have a secure peace 
one that can never, ever, ever be lost. One that does not hinge on our own efforts or our own sincerity. And I'm telling you right now that that is liberating for some of you in this room. Because you've been working your whole life to try to get God to love you. And you know what? Here it is. You can stop. You are free. Because He delights in you because of Jesus. That's the real hope of the gospel tonight. Well, it's not only a secure, secure peace that he gives us, but he also gives us a deep love. Let's take a look at verses 5 and 8. Do you see it there? He says this, and, and, um, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And then in one of my favorite pas- uh, passages in all of Scripture, it says this, but that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Y'all, I don't know of anything else more liberating than for you to read verse 8. If you are a Bible memory verse sort of person, I just beg you to burn that deep into your brain. To know that not... Look what it, look what it says. Let's, let's run through this for just a second. This does not say, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still all right. When we were trying hard enough. When we weren't sleeping around. When we weren't getting wasted. When we weren't obsessing about our body image. It does not say that when we were doing that, when we weren't doing this, when we were reading our Bibles enough, when we were going to RUF enough, that that's when Christ died for us. None of it. What does it say? It says that God demonstrated His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Y'all, I don't, how many of y'all ever remember, uh, like in elementary school, did y'all ever do like show and tell? Show and tell? Okay, you know what I'm talking about here. Okay, great. Well, listen. Romans 5.8, y'all, is telling us this. That God brings His Son dying on the cross for you when you were at your worst. Let that sink in. Not when you were at your best. When you were at your worst, Christ died for you. That is the gospel show and tell that God is telling you and He's showing you. If you the word in, 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 in verse 8, instead of uh, shows, another translation says God demonstrates His love for us in this. That while Christ Christ died for us while we were still sinners. It is gospel, show, and tell. And y'all, here's what I really want y'all to see. I want you to see that when you begin to ask the question, how do I know that God really loves me? Are you going to look to your 7,000th praying of the sinner's prayer? Are you going to look to your own religious performances? Are you going to look to your own good behavior? Well, if you do that, your life is going to be up and down. And you'll always wonder what God thinks of you. So I'm urging you tonight to quit it. To stop and do what we talked about last night, last week. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Because what this is saying is, is on what basis do you know that God loves you? You look at Romans 5 and you say, that Christ died for me when I was at my worst. 
if you look to your own contrition, if you look to your own sorrow and your own sincerity, y'all, you will never, ever, ever be convinced that God loves you. And can I just speak tenderly to some of y'all tonight? Some of y'all know deeply what I mean when I talk about assurance, wondering if God loves you. And you can be a Christian without sensing that God loves you. Because what saves us is Christ. What does not save us is how well we sense God's love for us. Does that make sense? What saves us is Christ. Not how well we sense it. I know plenty of men and women, young and old, who spend their whole life for whatever reason in God's providence, wrestling with, does God love me? And the real fuel for that answer is found on the cross. It's found in the deep, deep love of Jesus given to us. I want you to look as well with me in verse 10. Let's take this. I want you to do a little bit of a thought experiment for me. Verse 9 and 10 really together. Look at this. It says, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood. Okay. To what degree have we been justified by His blood? To what degree? All the way. Do you all see that? When Christ dies, 100%. That's how much we've been justified. But look what Paul says. Much more, now that we have been reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Do you see what Paul's doing there? He's saying, it's like he can't even find words. It's like you just want him to say like, you you were saved 100%, but now that you're saved, you're saved 1,000%. That's what he's trying to say. He's trying to get across to the degree that you have been saved, right? Which is 100%. Much more will you now be risen with Christ. Another word to think, make a thing about it is this. Before you, were, before you were made alive to Christ, to what degree were you a sinner? 100%. You were a 100% sinner. And what this is saying is as secure as you were 100% as a sinner, now because of what Christ has done through His blood, you are like infinitely percent saved in Jesus. That's what this text is trying to tell you. Listen to what one writer, a man by the name of Isaac Watts, who wrote the very famous Joy to the World, he also wrote a hymn, and hear hear his words here when he writes this. He, Jesus, raised me from the depths of sin, the gates of gaping hell. Do you hear that? Listen to this. And fixed my standing more secure than twas before I fell. Y'all, what I want you to see is that your Savior has got you. He has got you, y'all. He will never let you go. John 10 tells us about He cannot let you jump. He will not let you jump out of His hand. And if He has you 
but by the toe He has you entirely. His grip is secure. The grip of His grace holds on to failures and frauds like you and me. If you read Philippians 1, chapter 6, 1, chapter 1, verse 6, just turn there with me. I want you to read something. Philippians, go, go to uh, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, there it is. Okay. Philippians, chapter 1. Look with me at verse, verse 6. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Okay, there it is. Here it is. And I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will maybe, if you try hard enough, bring it to completion on the day of Jesus. Nope. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. What is this saying? That what God finishes starts, starts, he always finishes. And you can bank on that because of his deep and abiding love for you. And I want that to get down into your bones, y'all, tonight. Let's take a last look here at this third point, this idea of a glorious hope. A glorious hope. What do I mean to talk about when I talk about a glorious hope? Well, y'all, look with me at verses 3 to 5. Let's read these again together. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Now, when we think about hope, y'all, I think we think of like wishful thinking, right? Like, I don't know, like maybe at the end of the TCU game this past weekend, you had a little bit of hope. And your hope was like this. Boy, I sure hope we win. Right? That's not biblical hope. That's not what it's talking about. It's not a feeling of uncertainty and I hope things turn out for the best. That's not what the Bible means when it talks about hope. Hope is a future certainty. That's what hope is. Hope is a future certainty. It's a future confidence. A confidence in a certain future, if you like. And the idea is, is that Paul is telling us that if you are in Christ, you have a hope where you will not be put to shame. That's what verse 5 is talking about. Shame is a big deal. Shame is the idea of losing face before people. And what God is telling us here is that your hope is glorious. You will not be put to shame. Those who trust in Christ will not ever have their nose rubbed in it on the last day. You will be glorified. You will be lifted up. 1 John chapter 3 tells us about how we will be made like Him. That might be chapter 2. Don't quote me on me. But the idea is, is that you will be made like Jesus. That's the glorious hope that comes to us in the gospel. Because why? Because He who began a good work in you will bring it about into the day of completion. That's the great promise of the gospel. You know, I can think about it like this. I want you to think about it like if I were to say to you, um, okay, when you turn 25 years old, you're going to inherit $1 billion. How would that, knowing that just a few short years away, how would that change the way that you would live your life? Right? Might make things a little bit different. Well, do you know that if you are a Christian, you have a heavenly inheritance that a thousand worlds can't contain. That you have an everlasting life, a resurrection body in a completely renewed world, and you will live face to face with God forever. Sadness will be a bygone memory, 
and all will be beautiful. And what Paul is saying is, is that is the Christian hope. And what you are to do, literally, I don't know literally, figuratively, sorry, you, you know how you do that? You say literally, and you, you know what I mean. Anyways, this is what you got to do. you got to reach into the future and pull that back into the present and live on and bank on what is, what is true of you. That is what he is talking about, about this idea of Christian hope. Paul is saying that you have a glorious hope, even at this very moment. Even though it remains yet future, it is as good as present even now. And Paul is telling us that this hope will never, ever, ever put us to shame. How many of y'all know the rapper Snoop Dogg? Okay, pretty hip, I don't know, hip with the kids. Um, He has a son named Cordell Broadus, and Cordell is a football player, or was a football player, at the the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA. And he had had been, played for the team, he quit, he came back on again, and then he eventually stopped playing for good. And I want you to listen to what Snoop Dogg's son, I just love saying Snoop Dogg in a sermon, that's the best. Um, Listen to what Snoop Dogg's son says. He says this, I played football for my father because I thought that was the only way he would love me and be a part of my life. It took me 12 years to realize that he loves Cordell, the person, and not Cordell, the football player. The best day of my life was when I heard those exact words. Y'all, what's the saying? Is that Cordell was set free by the love of his father. That Cordell was set free by the love of his father. That he could give up playing football and he was still going to be loved by his father. He could quit trying. Do you see that? Quit trying to prove yourself to your father. And y'all listen, that is what lies at the heart of Christianity. You cannot prove yourself to get God's love. God loves you because of Christ. And so you can lay down all your little puny efforts to try to get God to love you. And what this text is telling us tonight, y'all, is this. Is that Jesus is the one that has come that has bled, that has died for you such that you might have the Father singing lullabies over you. That is what the promise of the gospel is. And the only way that you're ever going to be able to have a deep, lasting, and profound sense of God's love for you on your heart is if you will begin to look at that and to feast on that. I want you to get fat on the gospel. I want you to take it in and to grow on it. And the more that you begin to take it in, the more you begin to grow, the more you begin to read your Bible, the more you begin to pray, the more that you will sense in your life this deep and abiding assurance that God really does enjoy and delight in you. Let's pray.